You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Well done, Meredith, on all those names. Yeah, that's a tough one. It's a tough one. Well, sometimes I'll find a quote or some article I want to include in in a message. I'll just kind of hang on to it. And that happened with what I'm about to share. And first I had this uh, as the conclusion, and then a little bit later in the week as I'm studying, it moved up to be like a, one of the, under one of the, the main points, and then it ended up being into introduction today, so right off the bat. And I think it fits here at the beginning because Unity, which is our, our sermon series, uh, Unity Anywhere, including in the church, is neither, uh, neither easy nor comfortable. Isn't that right? So why not just start off with some discomfort? Right off the bat, here you go. Scott Dudley, the senior pastor at Bellevue Presbyterian Church in Washington, was interviewed for an article in the magazine, The Atlantic. And he said, that, or he, said he, is, he has, um, okay, here we go. I, I just came in from outside and it's like 50 degrees hotter <laughs> out there than here, so... He said he has heard of many congregants leaving their church because it didn't match their politics, but has never once heard of someone changing their politics because it didn't match their church's teaching. And he often tells his congregation that if the Bible doesn't challenge your politics, at least occasionally, you're not really paying attention. Many people are much more committed to their politics, he says, than to what the Bible actually says. We have failed not only to teach people the whole of Scripture, but we have also failed to help them think biblically. We have failed to teach them that sometimes Scripture is most useful when it doesn't say what we want it to say, right? So what do you do when the Bible doesn't say what you want it to say, or when the Bible clearly says something you wish that it didn't? I think one answer is to just go historic and uh, St. Francis, 800 years ago, had this, this prayer, and the first line of it is what I find myself often praying today when things are so tense, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. It's a good prayer. There's an outline in the bulletin if uh, you want to follow along. Uh, we'll be looking at it, the message this morning in three chunks, unity, what it is and what it isn't. And then we'll talk about two pictures of unity, one at Pentecost, one at Babel. And then do you really want unity? That's where we'll land uh, the message, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. So let's jump in. What unity is and what it isn't. We'll start with what it is. Here's a basic definition of unity. Uh, The state of being undivided or oneness. We see this undivided oneness in the nature of God. God, as we see him in the Bible, is a unity. Uh, The great confession of Israel, uh, called the Shema in Hebrew, is hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God is a unity. A unity which, as we read the whole of Scripture, we, we see includes diversity. And so for God, there's three separate persons, that's his diversity, but one God One unity. For us, many separate persons, lots of members in the body of Christ, but one body. So there's a reflection of God in us, unity in 
diversity. You and I and all who, uh, all, all the different ones who come to Jesus for salvation were brought together into one body, and that body's called the church. And here we have an undivided oneness with each other. We don't always act like it, but we have an undivided oneness, unity. We didn't create it. We didn't earn it. We simply receive it. But friends, now that we have this gift, this unity, we are called to tend to it, to maintain it, to keep it up. We're not responsible for creating it, but now we are responsible to maintain it, or as I've called the, the sermon title, to maintain what God has made. That's our calling, to maintain what God has made. Listen to Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And here's what the worthy walk looks like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Other translations say, be diligent to preserve the unity. Make every effort to keep unity. So God has brought about our unity. He did it for us, but now we have a responsibility to maintain it. I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. We're, we're, it's kind of like we're placed in a garden, the garden of unity, and we're called to plant it and weed it and water it. God made it, but we maintain it. When it's going well, this unity of ours, it's like a four-part harmony. You know, all those various voices, and they come together, and they form one pleasing sound, right? You have the diversity, but the, the sound is unified, and it's beautiful. When it's not going well, our unity, we'll want to cover our ears and run. As we consider what unity is this morning and throughout the series, it's also helpful to talk about what something isn't, so what unity isn't. And the first thing, I'll repeat this because these aren't in the outline, and if you're in a life group or you like to take notes, I'll just, uh, I'll repeat this, <clears throat> what unity isn't. Unity isn't ignoring or covering up or refusing to discuss problems. So unity is not ignoring or covering up or refusing to discuss problems. We'll sometimes hear, and, and far too often, things like the reason we didn't go public with the abuse of our church or our Christian organization is that we feared it would tarnish the name of Jesus and promote disunity. Or let's not talk about racism, whether in individuals or in systems, it'll just cause unnecessary division. Same with politics and a dozen other things. You know the saying, in polite company, you shouldn't talk about religion and politics. You do know the saying. Seems like that's getting expanded more and more, things that we're not supposed to talk about. That actually might be uh, the religion and politics. That might be good advice for you at your Thanksgiving with your family, depending on your family dynamics. That could actually be really wise. But if our position in the church is to, to make certain things uh, off limits, certain conversations out of bounds, to avoid hot button issues or culturally sensitive topics, then how in the world are we going to be faithful to God living in this world 
if we ignore those things or don't talk about those things, and how are we going to prepare the next generation to do the same? Almost everything today, it seems, is a culturally sensitive topic, right? You can't say boo without being booed by someone. Can I get a witness? Right? Amen. What's the answer? To keep our head down, to ignore the problems, to not talk about these things, just to make the best of it? Well, if your goal is simply to survive, then maybe that's your option. But if you want to live for Jesus, if you want to honestly and sincerely have your life matter to God and his kingdom, then disengagement is not an option. Now, this isn't going to look the same in each of our lives. We're different people after all. But each one of us are called to maintain the unity of the spirit. Not just a few of us, not just some of us who have a a special burden for that kind of work, not just the leaders of the church, each one of us. Unity isn't ignoring or covering up or refusing to discuss problems. Also, unity isn't uniformity, right? Everyone and everything being the same. You know, we all look the same, talk the same, dress the same, think the same, vote the same. How boring. And more importantly, how unbiblical. Christianity or Christian unity is the result of God bringing together people of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different social classes into one family, one body through faith in Christ. And though we're one in Christ, God doesn't erase our unique abilities or gifts or personalities, perspectives. He doesn't do away with our ethnic and cultural heritages. No, the kingdom of God is made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Right? There's a lot of diversity in the one united body of Christ. Unity isn't uniformity, thank God. And thirdly, unity isn't a virtue in and of itself. It's not a good on its own. How do we know this? Because Luke 23, 12 says, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. They got together, they got united. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Do you know what uh, bound together? Do you know what united Herod and Pilate? Jesus. Friends, Jesus makes enemies friends. Isn't that great? Unfortunately, in their case, it was their mutual hatred for Jesus that brought them together. I I can just hear them now. We, We couldn't get along until Jesus entered our lives and now we're besties, right? The enemy of my enemy is after all my friend. So you can be united around evil intentions. You can work harmoniously with others to accomplish bad things. Unity is not a virtue in and of itself. And when we come to terms with the challenge of unity in a very disunified world and church, and we acknowledge our own contribution to the problem, we quickly see that we need God's help with this. This is what our scripture reading uh, from Acts 2 was about, God empowering his people to do what would otherwise be impossible. Acts 2 records events on the day of Pentecost. This is one of Israel's holy feast days. And verse 6 says, on this day there were in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven. So they're all gathered, different languages, various dialects, people from all over the known world together in Jerusalem. 
And on this day, the Holy Spirit of God descends on the disciples who are gathered in the upper room. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They receive power just as Jesus said they would. They start speaking in other tongues. This noise is apparently quite loud. It draws the attention of the people who are gathered there. And I don't know if the disciples were out walking around the city at this point or the, the, the windows in the upper room were just wide open, but everybody heard what had happened. By the way, the city is thought to have been about 10 times bigger than a, a normal day in Jerusalem because of the feast. So a bigger audience for God to show off in front of. And when these Jesus people who are all from the region of Galilee, when they open their mouths to this cosmopolitan crowd, what comes out is extolling God's mighty works in languages that the speakers did not know. They didn't learn these languages. It was a miracle. That's why the crowd asks in verses seven and eight, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? How? Well, the short answer is God. God showed up and did something miraculous. So there we are at Pentecost. Let's leave Pentecost for a, a moment. Jump backwards in the story of the Bible to the very beginning, Genesis 11, the first book in the Bible. And there we see the people of earth gathered together and they built a tower that was so impressive it caught God's attention. So Genesis 11, 1 to 9, you can just listen along. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, so pretty united already. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse the language so they might not understand each other's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. They quit. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What do we learn from the story of Babel? What does this teach us about unity? That unity in and of itself is not a virtue. Unity on its own is not the goal for God's people. Unity as we see here at the tower is quite wicked. These people were united, but their unity was a slap in the face of God. They, like the devil before them, wanted to get out from under their assigned spot as creatures and ascend the heavens. They wanted to build a name for themselves instead of hallowing the name of God. They were united, and that was the problem because their unity was opposed to God. Their unity was all about them. If they were to rewrite the Lord's Prayer, it would say, hallowed be our name, our kingdom come, our will be done. Unity in and of itself is not what God's people ought to seek. 
It's unity around the right things. It's unity with and for God, not without and against him. There's a contrast between Babel in Genesis 11 and Pentecost in Acts 2 that we shouldn't miss. Uh, Here we have two pictures of unity. We'll call it Babel unity and Pentecost unity. In both stories, God is present, people are gathered, and language plays a significant part. But these two scenes could not be any more different. By the way, sometimes in Scripture, we'll we'll see two people or two things played off each other so that through the comparison, what is to be preferred is highlighted. Adam and Jesus in Romans 5 does that. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the book of Hebrews. And this morning, Babel and Pentecost. There's a, on the back of your outline, there's three quotes. We'll just read the top one uh, in the sermon. You can take the other two home, but if you would turn over there. The late John Stott, who was a, a, a Bible scholar, he was speaking of the comparison between Babel and Pentecost. And he writes, nothing but Pentecost could have demonstrated more clearly the multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the kingdom of Christ. Ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, languages were confused and nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, on Pentecost, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ. At Babel, Earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth. It's pretty amazing. At Babel, we see people trying to grasp God's power. On Pentecost, we see people waiting in obedience for God's power. At Babel, God confused the language because of the people's wicked motivations. On Pentecost, God did a miracle with language and advanced his mission in the world. At Babel, the nations scattered. On Pentecost, the nations gathered. So to sum up, mankind's sin is responsible for Babel. God's spirit is responsible for Pentecost. But now, by God's spirit, we who are his people, we are responsible to maintain the unity that God has brought about. And that is no small task, is it? One of the most important passages on unity in the Bible is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And we won't uh, go through all these verses, but if you want to turn there, it's in the New Testament. Here's where we'll spend the rest of our uh, time this morning in the message. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. In this passage, the Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus And Jews and Gentiles are his audience. They'd all responded to the gospel. And and now after a millennium and a half, so 1,500 years of hatred and hostility toward each other, they now find themselves calling each other brother and sister. Now they're in the same family. And that's going to take more than a little time to absorb, isn't it? Even though uh, they've heard it before and will no doubt hear it again, Paul reminds the Ephesians of their unity and what it cost Jesus to bring it about. He says in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself, that's Jesus, 
is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh. That means his dying on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus has made you one, Paul says to the Ephesians. So live like it happened. Talk like it's true. Love like it matters. That's what he's saying to the Ephesians. That's what God says to his people. Every time we read these words and hear his voice, maintain the unity of the spirit. The division has been dealt with. But like I said, it takes time to absorb this, right? Our minds are not renewed all at once. They are being renewed. The obstacle, the dividing wall of hostility, as Paul calls it, it was a, a metaphorically speaking, a thick and strong wall separating these peoples. Learning to live without that wall would not be a quick and easy change. God's people need time to grow. We need plenty of reminders along the way to be gospel people, don't we? We do. I don't know if you know this, but there was in fact an actual wall that Paul has in mind, one he could see called the dividing wall of uh, a dividing wall of hostility. It was a dividing wall. If you were to walk into the city of, of Jerusalem, let's say on the day of Pentecost, because we were just there, you'd come through the city gates, you'd make your way to the temple, and when you got to the temple, you'd notice there's several courts, these outer courts. There's the, the women's court, the court of the Gentiles, there's other courts. And then there is an inner court, and there would have been a wall called a soreg that separated the outer courts from the inner courts. It's a low uh, lattice screen or a railing, probably about four feet tall. And that was its purpose, to separate the inner court from the outer court. Jews could go beyond that wall, but Gentiles couldn't. And when you understand that the further in you go to the temple, the closer you get to the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwells, it's very clear what it means that you have to stop short. Gentiles this is as far as you can come. You're excluded. You can't get as close to God as we can. That's the message they were being sent. Not from God, not from Jesus, but from the religious establishment of the day. And friends, it's terrible when the church's message is not God's message. There's a first century Jewish historian named Josephus, and he says, on this wall that separated the inner and outer courts, there were 13 stone slabs, good size, that stood at intervals all around the wall, like warning signs, written in both Greek and Latin, so no one could claim they didn't know what it said. And this was important that the Gentiles take note of what's written on there, <clears throat> because it said, the cost of crossing the boundary is your life, right? These signs said, you can Google these and see it in, in the, the different uh, languages it's written. They had to be pretty big because there's a lot of words here. No foreigner, that's Gentile, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosures around the temple. Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's what it said 13 times. So it wasn't trespassers will be prosecuted. It was trespassers will be executed, right? So much for a hearty welcome from the, the people that God had designated to be a light to the nations. That was their calling. 
Now, the Gentiles as a people, before Jesus came, they were in serious trouble. That is true. They were idol worshipers. They, they, death was in their future. Paul speaks honestly to them about this. He says in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, remember that you Gentiles were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. That's true. You were outside Paul says to them, not just outside the little wall that separates the inner and outer courts, you were outside of God's love. You were outside of God's favor. But God says, but by the sacrifice of my son, you who once were far off have been brought near. This is good news. And the blood of my son, if it can get you past the, the obstacle, the huge impenetrable wall that separated God, God from mankind, then he can do fine with this silly little wall we've built around the temple. What Jesus Christ has done is to take two uh, formerly separated people, enemies, Jew and Gentiles, and unite them together in one body one family, one group from the two. Jesus has done everything necessary to bring unity where division existed. For you and God, but for you and you, and you and you and me. Jesus abolished what needed abolishing. He created one new man in place of the two. He reconciled, all these verbs are in this passage. He reconciled all who believe in him, reconciled them to God and each other. And where hatred once existed, now there is love. And there must be love. If you're a Christian, you must be a lover, a lover of God a lover of your neighbor, your neighbor who is your brother and sister in Christ, your neighbor who's not. There's no excuse. Well, you just don't understand the rough and tumble uh, world of politics. It doesn't matter. There's no excuse for not loving. Nothing excuses away obedience to God. Nothing. Nothing. Church, hear the warning and adjust where needed. This is from 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, you, you just don't know all the reasons why am I, what they've done to me, why I might hate them. You don't know. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother. If he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? But it must be present. To the Jews and Gentiles, once enemies, Paul says that there's nothing keeping you apart now, church, Jews, Gentiles. There's nothing keeping you apart. Jesus killed the hostility. How did he do that? By letting himself be killed. If it still exists, if that hostility is still there, that hatred is still present, it's because you're trying to resurrect it. It's dead. Let it stay dead. Who are the people of God? For 1,500 years, the answer was Israel, the Jews. 
But because of what Jesus has done, the answer now is the church, the multiracial, multinational, multilingual people of God. By his cross, Jesus did everything needed to bring unity, unity with God, unity with one another. The animosity has been removed. The hostility has been destroyed. Why live in it any longer? Why put up a wall when Jesus has done all that he has to bring it down? There's a lot of walls we could consider in our society today, our culture, a lot of divisions. But this word from Ephesians 2 is a word for the church, for us. It's to us who claim to know and love Jesus, the Prince of Peace. It's to us who say we love the word of God, the, the word which says maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. You know, I, I think there's a danger in knowing a lot of the, the big stories of the Bible just and not thinking more deeply about there's, there's actually people. It's hard to consider real people if you've come up with flannel graphs and things like that, right? We can hear about Pentecost and Acts 2 and Babel in, in Genesis 11 and, and think these big, epic Bible stories. We hear these, these, these taught, we, we can generally agree. We could all just say, yeah, I agree. Good unity is better than bad unity, right? Pentecost unity is better than Babel unity. We can all hear that and, and I would guess agree with that. But when we start drilling down and getting specific, when we start to picture the faces of people in your lives, brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we are definitely at odds with, it gets real, real fast, doesn't it? It gets a lot more complicated. Imagine the Jews and the Gentiles sitting across the dinner table from each other. Unity is a challenge. When we consider the actual cost of unity, what it will cost us, we, it costs Jesus everything, but what it will cost us, we have to ask if we really want it. So I'm asking you, I've been asking myself all week, so I'm going to shift the focus to you. I'm asking you, do you really want unity? Because, friends, there is no unity unless we're honest and humble there's no unity unless we learn to practice repentance and offer forgiveness. There's no unity unless our love for God and neighbor, all our neighbors, is more important than all other loves and all other allegiances. Do you really want unity? Maybe your heart would say, yeah, I see the challenge and everything, but yes, I do. I do. I really do. By God's grace, I do. How do I do this? How do I maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? That's like, that's pretty abstract. How do you do this? Well, three things came to mind for myself as I was thinking about uh, today. And I'd love to hear your suggestions, what you do that works for you, practices you have. But three uh, came to mind for me. The first is have a conversation with someone you disagree with. I don't know when this became seemingly impossible, but we can do this. Have a conversation with someone you disagree with. 
Uh, I won't say who, but at the end of the month, I'm getting together with someone from the congregation. We're going to have coffee. Uh, a few months ago, I floated them a book. They didn't care for it. They floated me a book back. I didn't care for it. Our books don't like each other. <clears throat> but we love each other. We're in the body together. We're family. And, and we're going to get together and have coffee and honestly talk. And I'm fully expecting that we're going to listen to each other. We're going to learn something from each other. And God's going to give us growth. We're going to grow together. We're going to seek the, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace through having a conversation with someone you disagree with. Another thing is join a life group and uh, be real with the people in it. That's a great way to promote unity. A lot of the reasons we have disunity is because we think about those people. We don't know those people. To actually be in a group with people, hearing different perspectives, having empathy for others, that's a great way to promote unity. So get in a life group and be real with each other. And the last one, self-serving. Uh, join the course Evelyn Gibson and I are going to be teaching in October. It's part of our Grace Conversation series, Political Talk. And it's just in time for the midterm elections. <laughs> it's going to be live. You don't want to miss it. What am I saying? Step toward tension. Move in the direction of disagreements. Not because you love conflict. If you love conflict, that's a heart problem. I'd love to talk with you because I, I, I know of what you feel. Not because you love conflict. Do it because you love God. Do it because you take God's word seriously and you trust that he knows what he's talking about. Do it because you want others to see a church who practices what they preach. And do it because the more you do it, the easier it gets. And after a while, maybe you'll just become the kind of person who, who reflexively, without even consciously thinking about it, you just move in the, the direction of maintaining unity. It'll be who you are. It'll be who we are. And isn't that wonderful? Amen. Let's pray. God, we, we pray just simply that you will help us to maintain unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That we will consider again and again, Jesus, what you have done to bring about peace with God and with each other. And we will live as representatives of that kingdom, that peaceable kingdom, that we will be peacemakers. We will have hearts that long to obey you no matter what the cost. And we'll trust that that's for our good and the good of the world. We thank you for all this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.